God told his people in the book of Hebrews that they had need of endurance. And that's what I'd like to speak to you on. Actually, what I'm speaking on is the endurance of Job. The endurance of Job. But to begin with, let's just take a, the briefest summary uh, of the, the account in the Old Testament is in James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So I hope to give a series of messages on the endurance of, of Job. The book itself is a very profound book and very thought-provoking, especially in its presentation of the subjects of evil and suffering and suffering in the believer's life and the need for endurance in difficult times. So I don't know for sure how many times, four or five maybe, we'll look in the book of Job. <clears throat> but before we begin here, let's ask the Lord again to be with us. Father, we ask for your help now. We know that each one of us have need of endurance. And if we could be helped here by looking at this man who endured such terrible affliction, if we could be helped by that, we pray that you would help us now as we look into this account. Teach us by thy spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does God allow suffering and evil and pain to come upon his people, especially upon his people? It's a question that has plagued believers. And the overall answer <clears throat> is that God uses suffering to bring his people closer to himself. And on even a deeper level, which we see here in the, in the book of Job, he even uses the evil one, Satan, to bring his godly ones closer to himself. God allowed the adversary, Satan, to harm a good man, Job, so that Job might be made an even better man. And while we are in this life, we all have need of being made better. Even one who is righteous, as Job was, had things that needed to be rooted out of his life, and God used the wickedness of Satan, the wicked desires of Satan, to bring that about. There can be such deep down and subtle sin in our lives that it takes some very hard things sometimes, hard 
to endure and hard to understand to expose them. John Piper says, There are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through affliction. Such things are easy to talk talk about and very hard to actually go through. But I know this, that a superficial view of God and his truth will not be sufficient to help us through those times. And that's one of the things we see presented here in the book of Job. The book of Job actually helps us to think deeper about God and what God does in a believer's life. Here was a righteous man that was, to begin with, extremely blessed and blessed, and then goes through extreme trials. He is actually stripped of all the things that people look to as blessings in this life. You might say his whole life was ripped apart. And as G. Campbell Morgan says, we see in the book of Job the tremendous and awful spectacle of a soul naked and alone in the universe of God. He came to the place where it was just him and God and unexplained unbelievable suffering. That's all there was to Job's life, him and God and suffering that he couldn't understand. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually, he was undone. So let's just spend a little time here and read the account of Job as it's given in the first two chapters and consider the endurance of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he had a real concern for his children, a real uh, godly desire that they would be right with God. And that's the scene on earth. Just a little picture of what Job's situation was on earth. But now the scene changes, and we're going to the heavenly scene. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also, that is the adversary, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Now, I just want to interject here. Satan had definitely considered God's servant Job before this, because he knows all about him. Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So there was a scene in heaven. Now we switch back to the scene here on earth. Now it happened on the day when the sons, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that the messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now the scene shifts back to the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among, among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without a cause. And Satan, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, 
Put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We'll stop there for now. So, consider the endurance of Job. What an incredible account of affliction and adversity we have presented for us here in in the life of Job. Up to this point that we've read here, uh, he is walking in amazing victory and faith in all that comes upon him. First he loses his wealth. He goes from wealth to poverty in a few hours. Now such things happen to people. Uh, I think of accounts like uh, during the 1929 stock, stock market crash. Some people lost all they had in a matter of minutes. And some people jumped out of skyscrapers and killed themselves when it happened. So he lost his wealth. Next, he lost his children. And as, as I brought out, he cared for these children very much, prayed for them, prayed that God would work in their lives. Ten children killed in an instant. But Satan was allowed to go even further than, than that. Next, his health was taken. You know, if you have everything and lose your health, all the things that you have really don't mean very much. But Job had already lost almost everything, and then he lost his health. And it wasn't just a matter of not being healthy. He was in great pain. That's not all that he lost, because he actually lost his life's partner. Now, she didn't die. I'm talking about his wife. She didn't die, but she tells him that it would be better if he died, which is not exactly a help a helpmate, one who's called alongside to help you. Really, she says, you know, what, what good has your integrity done you? Do you still hold fast your integrity? I mean, why? Why do you hold fast? Why do you say you are following God and want to follow God and have followed God? It's, it's not done any good, basically what she says. And then she plays right into Satan's desires. She says curse God and die which is exactly what Satan wants him to do to curse God so he loses her he's also apparently lost a number of his relatives uh, in terms of their any uh, being any help to him you have to skip ahead to see that but Job 19.13 says he that is God has removed my brothers far from me 
and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. So uh, my relatives have failed. So whatever relatives were around besides his immediate family, they left him also. And then what we see is that his true friends were harmful to him, though they seemed to be sincerely wanting to help him when they first came to see him. You, you have that brought out in the next verses. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity, all the adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together, and here's what they desired to do, to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. So their desire was commendable. And when they got there, they couldn't believe what they saw. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each one of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. They came to see him when everybody else had forsaken him, so that was commendable. And I think it was commendable that they remained silent for a while. At least it was better than what they had to say when they started speaking. They wept with, with him and for him for seven days. But the problem was they had a defective understanding of God and truth, and they also had a lack of compassion. And so they ended up actually doing more harm than good. And I just noticed as I was reading through uh, their uh, speeches to Job that really most of what they had to say was true. Now that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to think about that we can be saying the right thing, but it still can be wrong. You can be saying the right thing, but you're saying it to the wrong person at the wrong time and in the wrong way. And that's what was happening. Most everything that they said was right, but it was insufficient and inappropriate and, in many cases, unloving. And as time went on, it got worse and worse. Even before that, though, even before they said anything, Job was already in a place where he was cursing, cursing the day that he was born. You see that in chapter 3. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. And he goes on talking about uh, this. Just skip down to verse 11 as an example. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? So you can see what sad shape he was in even before they started to talk to him. There were such deep agonies of soul going on in his heart that he wished he'd never been born. He had lost most of his personal dignity and sense of worth 
and any sense of significance to his life. I say he'd lost most of that because he was still clinging to his integrity that he had tried to live righteously before God. And that's the very thing that his friends began to attack over and over when they began to talk with him. Basically, they were saying, you must have sinned, and you must have sinned greatly for this kind of thing to come upon you. So gradually, as you read through the book of Job, you see that his sense of a right relationship with God is eroding. And it's partly because of their words, these friends that had come to console him, and it's partly because of just the continued pain and affliction that he's going through day after day, week after week, month after month. How do I know it was month after month? Because he says so. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 3, So I am allotted months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing uh, tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms, and a crust of dirt, and my skin hardens and runs. So months and months of this terrible agony of soul, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, being ripped apart. And really what it comes down to is he just concludes that God is against him. God must be against me, is his his uh, conclusion from all this. Uh, seven, chapter 7, verse 20. Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? He says, it's like God is targeting, targeting me to afflict me and making me a burden to myself. Uh, 13.24 Why dost thou hide thy face and consider me thine enemy? He's saying, why why am I your enemy, God? And then 16, 12 through 14. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. What a picture of God dealing with Job. He's grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He he also he has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall in the ground. He breaks through through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. So on top of all this affliction is the spiritual dimension of him viewing God as coming at him like he was God's enemy. Well, that is the situation that Job is in. And I want to go into more of that next time, especially on the counsel that he received from his friends. You know, that's really the bulk of the book, 
It's not the main point of the book. It's not the real thing that God wants us to get from it. But nevertheless, chapters 3 through 32 are all made up of the, the conversations and arguments that he has with these three friends, supposed friends. And they, they were people who had a concern for him. So we're going to take some time to look at that. I don't know, one or two times. And then we'll look at least one time at another friend that he had that hasn't been mentioned yet. And then lastly, we'll look at what God has to say to, to Job. But to close this evening, I just want to say a couple things here. One thing that comes out is that neither Job nor his friends ever questioned God's sovereignty. God was clearly the one they said was in control of things. Now, I think that in some way they had a defective understanding of how God uses second causes. For instance, we're told about Satan being involved in this. Job and his friends never bring that up, never even realize it, as far as you can tell from what's presented. And God does use second causes to bring about his purposes. But nevertheless, that doesn't deny the sovereignty of God. So uh, we don't want to uh, ever get to the place when we try to explain difficulties and afflictions and suffering where we somehow deny God's control of those things. Now here's an amazing thing, and I just want to read a quote here, because what what we're saying and what the book of Job teaches us is that God does use second causes to bring about his, his purposes. The, uh, the actual immediate cause of Job's problems was Satan. Satan did those things. And yet, the ultimate cause concerned the purposes of God and God using Satan to bring about his own purposes. And uh, so here's one man, um, William Henry Green, uh, wrote a book called The Argument of the Book of Job. And he says this, speaking of Satan, with all his hatred of God and spite against his people, God's people, he cannot emancipate himself from, the, from God's sovereign control, which binds him to God's service. In all his blasphemous designs, he is, in spite of himself, doing the work of God. Now, this is, this is where it just gets beyond our comprehension. Satan has blasphemous designs and spite and hatred against God and God's people. Nevertheless, God somehow uses him to do what God wants done. Then he goes on to say, Fiend as he is, full of bitterness and malignity, and intent on every form of mischief, he is constrained to be that which he most abhors, helpful to the designs of God. Isn't that incredible? 
He's, he's constrained to be that which he most abhors, helpful to the designs of God, and he doesn't even realize it. I'm talking about Satan. He's doing his own hateful thing and bringing about the good, of, the good that God wants done in Job's life. Uh, Piper said that Satan's work is ultimately the work of God. Now that's, I mean, you could say that and it could be taken wrong, but in the context of what we've just said, that's what he means. Satan's work is ultimately the work of God. So we see, even in the reality of second causes, like the evil of man and, and the evil of Satan, that God still gets done what he wants done. So our ultimate answer and understanding of these things lies in God's sovereign control of the events of life. Our position must be this. God is wise and everything has a purpose. God is just and everything has a good purpose. God is mysterious and we often don't know his purposes. But we must not let what we don't know destroy our trust in God. We can rest in his sovereign good purposes. We must trust him more than we trust ourselves and our ability to figure things out. Well, that is a very brief introduction to what we want to look at the next few weeks. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. We haven't seen that yet, but I know that you've read the book of Job. (coughs) And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Well, we'll go on from there. Lord willing.